get the connection or yeah exactly it's the african connection well listen uh, welcome everybody to the latest edition of my podcast uh, my name is aluba phoenix and this is the podcast where i interview people that really inspire me uh, to consistently and persistently uh, pursue my potential and today i've got a fascinating guest for you all um many of us are at home uh, not able to travel thinking about where we may go when the restrictions are lifted at some point in the future. Um, Sasha Grabel, who is joining me today, is an adventurer. He's an author. He's a former ATP-ranked tennis player, mountaineer and photographer. But what's most interesting about Sasha, he holds the record for the most countries visited by anyone in history. Uh, so there are many rankings when it comes to countries visited. And what's unique about Sasha is the way he travels which is predominantly overland with hitchhiking and walking. Uh, and in fact, he's, he's covered more, 50 more borders that way than anyone else at any of the rankings. So fascinating uh, experiences, visiting different places and connecting with different cultures. Uh, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to uh, welcome him today. So Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us. Welcome, um, happy to be there. <laughs> Lovely. So, Sasha, just to kick us off, can you kind of give people a, a little bit of a, a feel for your backstory? I mean, you know, where have you come from and what was it that was the spark that initially got you to go on this crazy adventure where you've traversed the whole globe? Um, I'm from I'm from North Germany and uh, my parents, they they thought the whole family thing and aunts and aunties and grandparents and I don't know what was a little bit too much. So they moved down to South Germany and uh, to be able to um, have their time for themselves a little bit more and um, and also were able to travel to southern places on a more regular basis to, let's say, Austria, Switzerland, Croatia a lot and... Um, that's how we started traveling. My father was a teacher, so uh, I think he considered uh, the teaching time kind of the interruption from the traveling possibilities. Mm. And, uh, and then so every three months, basically, we did some kind of trip. And um, by, by the time I was 18, um, I had more memories of all these trips than of the, the entire school time combined, you know, the months in between, between September and then Christmas and then back to July. And, um, yeah, for me, it was like, um, it was a more intense way of living mm. when you see new things. That was, I think that was the most basic that was always in my head. Yeah, so all of that novelty. I mean, one of the things I've found with travel is how much it just expands the mind, yeah, and... Uh, you know, yeah, you sensitivity for that. If you if you if you see if you walk down the same alley of trees, you don't really look at the trees. But if you if you walk down a road for the very first time and something yeah. is beautiful, you will definitely see it, right? Yeah. So it kind of it kind of you work on your on the sensitivity of your of your senses, mm. of all your senses, uh, as as kind of your primary uh, occupation uh, of your of your lifetime which is kind of interesting <laughs> <laughs> i'd imagine and imagine uh, relying on those senses becomes quite uh, important as well when you find yourself uh, in challenging situations which i imagine you, ha you have done uh, given all the countries you've been to so i'm curious to hear uh, a little bit maybe first of all let's let's talk about where, what have been some of the places that you've gone to that have really captured your imagination and captured your heart. You know some of the best experiences you've had. 
Um, in general, it is the places where not so many people go to mm -hmm. because you will not make the tourist experience. Do you will? Uh, uh, how can I describe the tourist experience? It's when you arrive somewhere, then uh, you you leave your hotel in the morning. People will say to you, "Hi, come over here. Here you can get your coffee. Here you can get it for ninety nine cents." You, so you you kind of always hear these phrases, but you never really hear somebody talking original things. Mm -hmm. and, and when you go to, let's say you go to Papua or you go to Sudan, and um, uh, it's 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 usually the places that are not on the list, which is kind of uh, places that are physically very beautiful. Mm -hmm. They usually turn, and when the political situation is more or less good in those countries, they may turn into tourist destinations first. But uh, but the real um, thing because of which you, even 20 years later, remember that that was a very, very special place is not because there was a, maybe, you know, if you're near the pyramids, you should definitely see them, but mm. but uh, the reason why you always remember this one place, one country is because of the people you met there. Yeah, yeah. And tell me a little bit about how you interact with people, because obviously different languages, um, but also the, I would imagine there's a universal language with body gestures, and you know, so there's a way to connect even if you don't it speak. It is very interesting. There is there's one thing that that um, traveling solo is very, very different from traveling even with two people. Mm. Uh, I would say that probably 80, 90% of people who travel have maybe never tried to travel solo. And only if you do it 20, let's say you do it only 24 hours, mm. but don't sit there for 24 hours until somebody picks you up, but just uh, walk around on the streets, maybe in India or, you know, just without any plan. That's mm. the what you can do is to, to do something without any plan that that gives you the chance to 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 open something in your head and to make new experiences uh, if you just look in the travel book and then you um, you see uh, some photo and oh I have to get there I have to walk there and see that with my own eyes I mean um, maybe that's better than sitting in front of the TV but it is still a kind of a, a repetitive uh, kind of a second-hand experience it's really interesting what you say. I, I'm reminded of a, a quote by Carl Jung, who said, the, the way to truth is open to only those without intentions. So kind of letting go of, you know, a specific... I mean, how, are you going to, how are you going to broaden your mind if you're just repeating the experience? I mean, mm -hmm. if you know it beforehand, what you're going to do, uh, how can it uh, supposedly change you? I was, I was uh, when I was small, I was thinking that if I'm going to be a grandfather one day, then and maybe you just sit there and you cannot really do much, then you have to have something interesting to tell. Mm -hmm. then, then maybe your grandchildren uh, will, you know, they will like you very much, they will find it interesting, and otherwise it will be dull. If you've done so much traveling, then that along the way you've you've missed out on creating a family, and then you don't have that kind of because of it. That's a, that's another problem. <laughs> yeah. Then you have to recheck uh, your balance, you know, uh -huh. between those things along the way. As uh, you know, by the time you realize it, that you maybe that's already too late. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I guess, as you say, travel changes you in many ways. So what are some of the big changes you've noticed for yourself uh, that you've, you know, as you've gone on this adventure that you've had? Um, I have to say that uh, when I was about 18, 19, 20, I left school on the day I turned 18. Mm -hmm. 
And in those days, I was trying to become like a big professional tennis player and all these things. That was the main. And But it was also that um, um, a colleague in school uh, once said to me, that, oh, we have to do what our parents want from us. And even if it's hard and even if school and we have to, you know, get those certain grades and then... Um, at at weekend we're going to get drunk so we get through all this. I said no, this is this is not for me at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to change your uh, your perspective or your priorities or you know if you don't want to do one thing you do another thing. For example, I don't think I've ever had a headache in my life. Wow. Uh, other than when I had malaria um, once I was out of school, but when I was in school I had headache. Sometimes, you know, so that means if you uh, if they are going to tell you what you're going to have to think about, that's not really healthy. Uh, but if you think about those things that interest you, then automatically you're, you're going to have you're going to give full attention. Mm. And so that means you're going to get much further in those fields. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you're saying, isn't it? When following your bliss and how that can really help you focus your mind and your attention on the experience you're having rather than being distracted. Uh, which is a big issue. And what happened people. was, sorry, what happened was that uh, four months later, this uh, colleague of mine, mm. he committed suicide. And and another year later, my uncle committed suicide. Okay. I don't exactly, of course, know their personal goals. Yeah. But for me, the thing was that what is usually considered in Western society to kind of um, postpone gratification and do one more grade and one more study and, and, and then be like more on the safe side, mm. um, that may not necessarily been the best way to approach things. But if maybe you, you, you directly always go for what you want to do at that moment, and overall it will give you much more happy days in your life than it otherwise, otherwise would. Uh, you know, maybe for society as a whole, that's not the goal. But for you as a person, mm. maybe it makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and what are some of the peak experiences that you've had then? Because obviously, you you know, you go to these places, everything's new, it's fresh. Uh, but I imagine some of the experiences really are kind of stick in your memory. Uh, so what, what are some of those peak experiences? Um in Namibia, for example, you see all the big animals, the, the lions, the giraffes, the the hippos, the um, Victoria Falls. Um, in Brazil, people are super, super friendly. You get so many smiles and, and, and the language is almost like singing. Um, in um, in Sudan, you know, I walked along the Nile River. I usually walked at night because it was less hot and, you know, you can walk further and you don't need so much water, uh, you know, the, the danger of, 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 of dehydration. Mm-hmm. And, 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 but the thing also was that, uh, that automatically the custom there was that, uh, that people would stand outside their doors and they would invite you for tea and you would probably end up sleeping there for a day, you know, like, like almost the whole month was like that. Of course, if you're the only guy walking through there, uh, this will happen. But if a horde of people are walking through there, that's kind of the thing that happens to Asia. You know, Asia in a way um, has a lot of things to offer, uh, especially coming from Europe. But but 30 years later, there's so many backpackers that uh, it's you know you cannot expect to uh, 
to have this uh, exceptional experience, you know, when, when the situation is like that. When I was in Papua, um, I was trying to cross the Stanley Ranch. Um, it is very hard, especially when you have a big backpack. So I chose a different, a different road, a different route. And, um, and when we were in there, we realized there was uh, people carrying bags of drugs and, and Kalashnikovs in return, mm-hmm. carrying them back up uh, from, from, they told me they got that from Russian submarines, I don't know. And they, they have to carry those Kalashnikovs back up to the tribes. And um, so you're in the middle of that. And for example, you there's just a tree across a, a canyon and it goes 20 meters down and you're four days on that on that path. Mm. Uh, uh, those people they walk over bare feet, and you are wearing your shoes. You don't even you know you're not used to wearing barefoot, uh, being walking barefoot. And then, mm. are you going to slip? Are you not going to slip? Are you going to risk it? Uh, you know, or are you going to walk back another four days? It's it's those are very very uh, <laughs> strong moments, and uh, and usually in retrospect, you know, once you manage to get through, then you will of course never forget them. Mm-hmm. They will always make a good story. Yeah, yeah. Or challenging, <laughs> most challenging situations are sometimes the ones we remember the most. I, I'm curious about, because um, I know you've had limited uh, serious issues as you've been traveling, but you did have one particularly uh, serious issue when you traveled in Gabon, uh, which is a country very close to my own heart. I go over there every year. Um, I've always experienced it as a very peaceful country, but it was interesting that that was the one place where you had some really serious problems. Uh, can exactly, you tell us a little bit exactly. what happened there? Um, yeah. Nine years later, I would go back to Gabon and everybody said to me that, uh, oh, how can you ever do that? And that's when I realized that this is actually one of the most peaceful countries in the whole <laughs> continent. And I was just, one time I was unlucky and... Um, and I was then somebody told me that those guys that caught me uh, were were some kind of famous Cinderella robbers, like kids, and you know, like you know, either or, but no going back, something like this. And then only three months later, they caught them, and I could probably actually you know visit them in prison <laughs> nine years later. Yeah. And uh, I was on the verge of going there and ask them, hey, you know, do you still know where my bag is? The way did you throw it? Because actually, the only thing I'm concerned is my film roles, you know, nothing yeah. else. Yeah. So t- tell us a little bit what specifically what happened to you at, at that moment, um, just so people are aware. Oh, it was funny because I was traveling from the Central African Republic through the, the, the Congo to Gabon and uh, and and all those areas had been really really hard in the in, mm. in, in the Central African Republic. I was one night uh, there was twenty shots and uh, I was in central prison and then freed f- by some French army uh, instructor and then and then in the in the three country corner Cameroon Central African Republic and and, and Congo. Sangan a tri-national park there was I had to wait a couple of days until one guy had a canoe and paddled me down 80 kilometers us uh, sleeping uh, on, on an island in the river uh, where with you know with some fishermen and they told mm. told us sometimes the crocodiles are coming and stuff like that so when I finally and then oh and then I when I arrived in the Congo they told me um, too many elephants have have destroyed the road since the civil war and there is no road anymore and I have to fly over. And usually when I hear 
from somebody, this cannot be done. That's when I get interested, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, let's try, let's try, you know. And it was 250 kilometers walking through there. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, kind of puddles and black mm. water. And in the beginning, I would every time get out of the shoes and back in. And then I was tired of that. So I just walked through mm. and eating elephant, eating monkey with the pygmies there, staying in their camps and, uh, and, um, there was 250 kilometers, and when I got out on the other side, my feet were so infected and blistered and, you know, swollen that I couldn't get back into my shoes. Mm. So I was I was staying with this Franciscan monks for nine days and putting my feet up until they were, and, and antibiotics, until they were kind of healed, and then I would continue. And only three days later, just entering Gabon, where for the first time there was no roadblocks, there was no ro- army roadblocks every 15 kilometers. Mm. You know, army roadblocks, they look bad and there's Kalashnikovs and there's, you know, there's like kind of funny guys standing there. For example, in Liberia, they uh, they check your bag. I had $3,000 cash in my bag, you know, for once because I've been working for this NGO. Mm. And um, and they are smoking ganja and they're, you know, kid soldiers and uh, wearing the bazookas and Kalashnikovs and they dig through my bag but they don't find it you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. and, uh, and then one in Central Africa one guy he, he kind of gripped my beard and you know oh, for example one time in Liberia this guy said you know don't give me small she give me ten dollars or ten bucks or otherwise I'll pump some some bullets into your stomach you know right and yeah then, and um, so for the first time, there was no roadblocks. But at the same time, this one guy said to me, oh, oh, you're daring, you're, you're courageous to, to hitchhike around here, you know, here in the jungle. And just a day later, I, there was no car for about five, six hours. And I already found a place where I could sleep for the night. Mm-hmm. And then at 7.30 p.m., it was already dark. I'm hearing a car. So I'm, I'm running back out on the street. And there's these five kids with a brand new uh, pickup, Land Cruiser, and I'm asking them for for a ride. And they said, yes, so I get my bag out and I'm jumping on. And uh, we drive, they they drive like crazy and we drive through the jungle for a couple hours. And uh, once we we, we stopped for peeing, but I already kind of had a little bit strange feeling. So Mm. I stayed very close to the car. And uh, in the middle of the jungle, I think it was called Lobo or something like this. Mm-hmm. There was a small town and um, and uh, and then they stopped and they asked where I actually wanted to go. And so um, I asked them, are you going all the way through to Libreville? So, yeah, then I can go with you. And then... Um, and, and and then they said, okay, you can sit in the front. Because, but they were five guys. They, so another guy came to sit in the back of the pickup and I turned around mm. and <clears throat> next thing I saw that he was working on the locker of my, of my backpack. And, and, I, and then I was like, Oh, this is not so nice. I said, so it was like one or one thirty in the morning. And, um, and so I said to them, Hey, no problem. You know, you can, you can, you can, I can sit in the back, you know, the, you know, and then next thing they all pulled their guns and like everybody had a different gun. One had this kind of black thing. The other one has a silver thing. The other one had, a, I don't know, revolver. The other one, like a metal, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, so the car was stopped and I was, um, I was trying to hold on to my bag and, um, 
I didn't want to, I, you know, I, of course I didn't want them to shoot, but I also was not ready to give my bag. And so I was kind of just holding on and, 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 and ducking down with my head. And I was a little bit taller than them. So they started hitting me with their guns. And um, I guess then they broke my my wrist, you know, of my tennis arm, my left side, and then um, and I was saying, "Oh, you what, what do you want? Do you need money or what?" So the, my my money is here. So they all also went into my pockets, or, uh, my my trousers, and they took everything out there, right. and they they threw my there was my passport. They threw my passport kind of into the ditch, and then they wanted to drive off. So I, I went to the grass and picked up my passport and I jumped back onto the pickup. I was still not ready to let go somehow. I don't know. And uh, so with my broken arm, I kind of headed, you know, like how you head in, into the water. I kind of headed onto the pickup and there was one guy standing on the pickup and um, they didn't know maybe I was also armed. Mm -hmm. So uh, he jumped off. He, the guy was just starting to drive. So he jumped off the pickup and by the... Uh, by doing so, one shot went out of his gun. Uh, so that means they had like unsecured guns, you know. Yeah. And um, and then the driver stopped again. The driver was also the leader, and 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 everything was of course in French, you know. So mm -hmm. and um, so the leader kind of aimed at my thigh, and he said, "You either you back off, or you we, we're going to shoot you into the thigh, and then we drive off." Wow. So that's wow. when I lifted my hands, and then and then they drove off, and so, then I then I walked back five kilometers to that village, and um, and I knocked at every door, but uh, I was like full of blood because they hit the guns over my head, and uh, I was full of blood, and nobody would open. They were all scared, and um, finally two girls they opened for me, and then and then they kind of called the police. Mm -hmm. And then I said, hey, this is in the middle of the jungle. There's only one road. They will take maybe another three hours to reach the next roadblock. And you can just call there and we can still catch these guys. They said they had no phones. They had no phone. They had no way to communicate. I was I couldn't believe it. And then and then I said, OK, there was some NGO people, NGO people came. And um, I said, hey. Can we take the car and we can just look there? Maybe they threw my bag, you know, they went through, they tried to look for money and then they throw my bag out because it's, it's like, it's like proof, you know, it's like the, the evidence, you know, so they will throw that out and we can still find my bag and probably my photos, you know, and maybe, you know, my other passport or, you know, I can continue my trip, something like that. And, and they were so scared because it was a Sunday night and on Friday, two days earlier, there was a couple of guys. Uh, they went through a, a hotel. They took a hotel hostage in that village. Mm -hmm. And they belonged to a minister of the country. And uh, they went through every room. And they, they, like two and a half, uh, they took like two and a half hours. And, and they, they get a couple of thousand dollars out of that. Right. And uh, and it seemed that, at, you know, at the end of that weekend, they drove back to the city and then they kind of, and, and also one taxi driver was also killed that weekend um, in that village. So that was all together. It was most probably exactly the same people. And they kind of uh, took me at, you know, at the end of that weekend going. So they were also scared in that village. They wouldn't even do that. I said, hey, guys, be logical. They will not be there anymore. They will, they will of course, have driven on, but they wouldn't do it.
Yeah, yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm struck where you talk about your interactions with some of these child soldiers in particular, um, because obviously they're, they're probably the most dangerous situations, you know. They are unpredictable, you know? but the, yeah. the, the, the funny thing was that um, when you when you cross the border from Sierra Leone to Liberia, there's just a, a very tiny shack, and uh, interestingly, one guy who took a photo of that border won the, the UN picture of the year that year, rewarded by $10,000, and and there, you know, usually I always hitchhike, and you try to hitchhike, but they said no, there is no hitchhike, and you have to take this like collect taxi, like five six people until the taxi is full, and then you go. Mm. And then there was a couple of roadblocks, and finally um, at the junction when it goes into Monrovia, and it was just getting dark, uh, it was one of the bigger roadblocks. They said no more, you have to get out. So you know, I've already paid the taxi. Um, uh, but they just take me out, and I didn't know what was going to happen. After I said to this guy, you know, I, I said to the leader of the group there, you know, this other guy, you know, tell him not to bother me. And then there was nothing to do, so I went to I went to sleep a little bit. There was like a shack inside, and then the end of the evening, uh, a special uh, special forces car came, also a pickup from Monrovia, and they had the bazookas and uh, and. Um, you know, new munition, and they also had smokes like um, marijuana and um, and ninety percent gin. Wow! So these fifteen-year-old guys, they would they would uh, empty like the gin bottle and smoke a joint, and then and you know in shorts and bazooka and Kalashnikov, and then they were ready to be driven into the jungle to. F- to fight on the front against the rebels, you know. And the rebels are people that are financed since 14 years mm. by the U.S. and by the whole international community. Mm. And these kids are actually thinking that they are doing the patriotic thing and serving their leader, Charles Taylor. Mm. And the thing with Charles Taylor is that he actually escaped the prison in the U.S. and bribed the prison guard there, and that's how he's escaped. And then later became president in Liberia. in Liberia. Yeah. Supposedly a big tennis fan, Charles Taylor, but that's something else. That's and then and then I, I I don't know. That's that's the only reason why that started. But there was a civil war for fourteen years, and eventually he was the first reigning head of state, um, arraigned and um, you know indicted in the Hague international war crimes. And finally, if you remember that. The final, um, um, you know, the way the court tried to prove it was by getting Naomi Kemper, getting her conf- uh, confess or, you know, uh, wit- uh, witness that she had diamond rings, earrings given to her by Charles Taylor. And that was the final proof that those were blood diamonds and that, and that, that everything was justified. Can you believe it? <laughs> I mean, how thin is that? <laughs> what, 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 this guy, he kept me one night. Oh, that what that what happened. So, I real, you know, and they told me basically every night, thirty of these guys, you know, get shot, and you know, you know, young kids, and they have to go to hospital, and then you know, they are probably ruined for life, and they're almost running out of people. 
And that was basically his last year, 2002. That was Charles Taylor's last year in, in the 2003, in the beginning of the year. They finally caught him running away uh, in, in the hills between um, Cameroon and Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, so when, uh, on the way back, after they brought these weapons, on the way back, they took me into Monrovia. And um, that's when I realized why they took me out of the taxi, because there were so many roadblocks and each roadblock is heavier, and uh, and you know they may even demand money, like in in, in, in Central African republics, like that. Like mm. uh, the 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 roadblocks before the capital become bigger and bigger, and each time they want more money. They want like let's say seventy dollars each roadblock, and there's every one every twenty minutes. So you have to every twenty kilometers. So you have to argue, you have to bargain it down. Maybe okay, end up giving seven or fourteen. I don't know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so constantly, yeah. constantly living in your wits and constantly coming across what I would say. Oh, hang a sec, Sasha. I'm just gonna I'm gonna mute you for a moment so while I'm speaking, because uh, there we go. I'll come back. I'll take you off mute in a sec, Sasha. There's a bit of issues with the audio there. Um, yeah, what I'm struck by is that you know you, you've experienced a lot of you know the real problems in the world. Uh, you know things like the Charles soldiers and very difficult situations and the dark side of humanity in many ways. And then at the same time. You know, the only reason you've been able to get across the world the way you have is through the help and, you know, collaboration that you've had from people that you've met on the way. So you've kind of come across all shades of humanity in that journey. And uh, what I'm curious about really is, you know, kind of what, what are your, what have you really learned about, you know, humans as a species on this planet and, you know, uh, as you've gone and met so many of them over the course of your journeys? I'll just take you off mute now. There we go. Oh. You might need to unmute yourself, Sasha, to answer that one. I put you on mute there for a minute. There you go. Um, the interesting thing is that if you know everything about every situation, then you will understand every situation. Mm-hmm. But but nobody can go so far to you know to dig back into every person's uh, experience since they were born uh, in every single day's conversation if you would you would understand everything so that means when people get judged it is always a simplification mm-hmm. it's all it's, it's always a simplification of things and that's also the problem that sometimes the 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 resentment that you create because inside these people feel that they've been wrongly judged mm-hmm. and then because of that there is a reaction mm-hmm. so sometimes it feels like you are growing the problem because of it mm-hmm. yeah. for example i was i spent two months in prison in uh, in papua and in the solomons uh, two years ago and um 80 of these people were murderers mm-hmm. and um at the same time, one of these guys was my best friend. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and sometimes it was like, um, you know, like everybody there is running around with a huge machete mm-hmm. and then they get drunk and they're young kids. And they, for example, they told me their story. One time they came at night, you know, there's no electricity, it's dark. They came to the village and they were arguing. And the next thing, these guys, they, they cut the arm off of his younger brother and they ran off with it. Wow. So what are you going to do in a situation like that? Mm-hmm. Are you going just to going to sit there? Or are you maybe going to run after them? Yeah. And then you run after them and they all have machetes. And then next thing, there's a couple of people dead. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does highlight how 
dangerous it is to try to judge other people in other cultures from the context and the culture in which you sit, you know, because you're, you're not living that. Story. You know, for my travels and first-hand experience, the most dangerous thing you can do is walking around with a knife or with a gun. And people would say to me, oh, how can you go to Congo? How can you go to here and there um, uh, without being armed, you know? Mm -hmm. But definitely, if you would be armed, the situation just gets much, much more dangerous. That's all that happens. Um, you know, I don't know how it is when you walk into the, the wrong neighborhood in the UK or something, but um, I know a friend of mine, he's a diamond trader in Congo, and he says he's afraid to walk around uh, eastern German cities at night because there would be gangs. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I know that if you are unarmed and if you are talking to the people and if you take them seriously, then um, you get, uh, in almost all of the cases, you get a very good reaction. And sometimes people that, that have been neglected, they have, that have not been hurt, from that you get even a better reaction, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's that showing of respect, isn't it? Where you can really try to connect to the human level. And, I mean, you say, if you, try to make it, if you decide for yourself as, mm. your, as, a, as a single person, you're trying to maybe make a difference in your life, then maybe this is the right approach. Great learnings. Sasha, uh, we're obviously in a situation where nobody's traveling at the moment. <laughs> Hopefully that will change in the future. Sorry? I said we're, we're, we're in a situation at the moment where nobody is traveling. Um, and we all hope that's going to change in the future. Um, what, what do you think the, the world of travel will be like beyond the current circumstances? And for yourself, do you have any particular places that you still want to see that you haven't seen yet? Um, I was stuck in Iran more than seven months this year. I mean, last year, and uh, because we were always thinking, let's wait another month, maybe the borders will open, let's wait another month, and it wasn't really getting better. But um, I met one Indian guy there, and um, he wanted to kind of make Iran his first country of travel, and then, and then you know, he liked my story, so he started getting interested in Africa. Now he's been traveling to Ethiopia, Sudan, mm -hmm and um, posting things on Instagram and and you get the feeling that in many other countries uh, life is more or less the same as before and maybe um, only Europe is so changed but if you try to google it there's not really you don't really get much information uh, a friend of mine told me that in Mexico it was um, it was also pretty bad even though he could travel but it was pretty bad um, I mean, my style of traveling, I almost all of the time I hitchhike and an Italian friend of mine, he has continued and, and, and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times he was, uh, the streets were completely empty in Turkey. He was, uh, and, um, but he, he, he was still able to, uh, in, uh, to travel in a, in a different way. It's like that. Now we can almost travel the way I said before, like it was a special, special, special country. Because now you're going to be one of these very few people still doing it. A friend of mine, he's, he's going to the volcanoes in Guatemala and, uh, and staying at this beautiful hostel at the riverside. Uh, he sent me some photos, beautiful photos. Um, in a way, you, 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 you can travel uh, maybe now in more countries uh, uh, as kind of this super special experience. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Well, look, Sasha, I just want to thank you again. Uh, really, really rich experiences you've had, beautiful lessons um, that you've learned through that process. I want to thank you for sharing that with, with everyone today. Uh, for those of you interested in getting more information around Sasha's adventures, um, his book is uh, 30 Years Travelling um, Around the World. Was it Travelling 30 Years Around the Planet? I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So it's there uh, for everyone to have a look at as well. Um, so, Sasha, I just want to finish by saying thank you so much again. And it's been a pleasure to have you on. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I'm just fascinated by your experiences and uh, really looking forward myself to seeing some places again once the current situation comes to an end. I think most people are. Um, so thank you again for, for spending time with us today. Maybe one last thing. Uh, once a, a French guy told me that we were traveling in Zanskar together in Ladakh, and he mm. told me that his father said that he should not go to Africa before he was 40 because Africa would be the best place and the, the most, uh, and because otherwise he would not want to go anywhere else. <laughs> and, they, and another thing they said to me that uh, you have to go to Asia first because Asia is going to change the fastest. Uh-huh. But uh, if I may add to that, um, Africa is is always the place that that will give you the most extreme and the most kind of heartfelt and, and original and authentic experience. So um, I, I can always recommend it. Yeah, well, I resonate 110% what you're saying. It's my favorite place to go as well. So uh, uh, with that said, I have a little bit of music from uh, Africa. Uh, it's yeah. been an absolute pleasure. Um, speaking to you and all the best for your enterprise there and um hasta la próxima vez <laughs> take care thanks sasha bye See bye bye